document, keep a journal, put a line down the middle of the page, date it today and say, this is what I want and this is what I don't want. Make a list. Every few months, go back and reflect on it. Hey, Grish, how are you doing? Good, Jess. How's it going? It's going well. It's so nice to see you again. You are now back in Minnesota after having spent a little bit of time in Senegal. How was it? Tell me about your trip. Yes, yes, yes. Good to be back home over the jet lag finally. I was in India, obviously, for a couple weeks, and then Senegal was an amazing trip. I mean, what a beautiful country, beautiful people. Too short, though. I was only there for three days, and oh my, it was hot and humid. <laughs> 90% humidity. And I think close to 90 degrees almost every single day. But wow. uh, it was great to be there. Like I said, I was there with a bunch of uh, senior international officers from a bunch mm -hmm. of universities. And we visited some schools, met with a lot of students, some parents as well. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And I'm actually really excited to, I haven't listened to your clips yet. So I'm excited to listen to them and put them together to the episode for next week. Yeah, yeah, it was actually fun. I actually recorded one at on the way back at the JFK airport. So you'll probably oh, you? hear <laughs> like the background sound of this, and like the little cart thing with its beeping sound. But um, I was really excited to be there. I'm looking forward to going back, uh, hopefully sooner than later. Uh, you should definitely visit. One day, one day, yeah. I will get to somewhere in Africa. I have never been to any country. Yeah. Yeah, I'm excited to expand our efforts there as well. But uh, so who do we have this week? This week is Gretchen Dobson, who is an international alumni specialist. And Gretchen has lots to say and she's full of energy. So I'm really excited to have her as a guest on our podcast this week. Yeah, me too. I've never met her. So I'd like to hear more about that, especially the whole alumni piece. I'm really intrigued. Welcome back to Destiny Benders. Today on the podcast, we have Gretchen Dobson, Associate Director Scholarships at Tetra Tech International and a Global Engagement Specialist. Gretchen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jessica. It is great to be here this morning and really, really nice to be on my homeland soil. I'm um, coming into both of you from Washington, D.C., well, it's a pleasure to meet you, Gretchen. So let's get started. Obviously, you said you're in Washington, D.C. right now, getting ready to go to a board meeting here in a few minutes, uh, but you're actually in Australia. So tell us a little bit about your story. How did you get into international education? How did you end up in Australia, the whole, the whole shebang? <laughs> starting, starting off, I think, even leaving the West Coast to go to university back in 1987 was probably like going to a different country. Um, after leaving the Sacramento area to attend um, university at Boston College was a great education itself. Boston is my favorite city in the world, the education city, over 50 colleges and universities in the greater Boston area. And I was active as a, as a student. I was a student leader in high school, wasn't going to change with college and stayed active um, throughout my four years. And in that time, I really grew to loving um, the work with our students. I had a dabble, uh, an opportunity to, to meet some alumni. And I thought, you know, what is it around the university and student activities and student life that, you know, what is it that maybe I could get involved with as a career? And so my first step into education was really in student affairs. And I 
uh, worked in student accommodation or student housing. And I spent the first nine, 10 years living on three different college campuses in the Boston area and finally running the whole program at Wheelock College, which formerly known as Wheelock College um, on the Fenway and working with international students who would stay uh, during the break times, getting a chance to get to know them and being an avid traveler, even in my early 20s, having some exposure as a child to, to international travel and and having family and friends living abroad, it just was, I think, a natural step for me to move into education. And then after spending 10 years in student accommodation, I moved off the campus and into um, the great area of Cambridge. And that's when I began a 10-year long tenure at Tufts University. Uh, I didn't, didn't actually look for the job intentionally, but what I did during a break between student life career and my advancement career is that I stepped out and initiated an internship. Now I was 32, I initiated an internship for myself with my alma mater's alumni association. And it was that step that really paved the way for an opportunity to network in the advancement world. So in 2001 and two, I was an intern, I was flexible, I did some volunteering, I was always engaged with the Boston College Alumni Association. And I networked my way to Tufts University, where I worked under my mentors, Tim Brooks, Brian Lee, Larry Backow, now president of Harvard, and worked with a wonderful team. And that was where we began to really, I think, knit all the relationships we had around the world together in what was going to be a very successful $1.2 billion campaign. So a little bit of the story, but that says a little bit about the influential steps and people in my life already that I think created, you know, more of an interest in constituent relations and what the people to people connections could mean to an institution and to all involved. Interesting beginning in an interesting way, kind of a little bit different from what we've heard from some of our other guests, how you got into international education. I totally understand where you're coming from with this, the residence life early on in my career. I was also in residence life for a number of years. You and had then a beeper or a phone? Uh, we had a pager. A beeper. Yeah, was, I had a beeper. A, <laughs> it was before phones, Gretchen. It was a pager. <laughs> Staying up all night. Oh, I know how that goes. But I want to go back to, to your beginning. So before you went to university, when you were in high school thinking about going to university, what did you want to study and what did you want to be when you grew up? Where did you think you were oh going gosh. to go before that path led you to where you are? Totally. I wanted to be Jane Polly on the debate today show, you know. I wanted to be Jane Polly. I wanted to be Christiane Anampour. I wanted to be, um, you know, a journalist. And I still feel like I have that frontline media bug in me somewhere, somehow. And I just would always find joy in sharing the story of others and other achievements and kind of pulling that together and bringing it to people and doing so in ways that would both, you know, drive, I think, engagement, be the advocate raise questions and, you know, I think confidently lead others to some sort of a, a, a group goal. And so, you know, I think journalism was where I was heading. I was looking at Boston College and looking at the communications department and it was speech communications and theater. That's what it was in 1987. Believe me, I thought that's perfect. 
I mean, I was a thespian. I was in all the plays and I was in student government. I was in sports. And, you know, what was I not doing? I didn't have a part-time job. And my parents at the time, my parents had been divorced since I was four, but which is another story in itself about how one's upbringing and the independence one, one, I think one gains by living in two different families. But the, the thought of oh, theater, sport, I mean, all that put together, well, when I arrived, it wasn't necessarily a developed department. Now, comms has been one of the biggest departments at BC in the last 20 years. But when I was there, one of the 50 Californians at the time to attend Boston College, it was small. And I realized it was too small for too small of a program to really, I think, um, whet my appetite. So I moved over to the political science department. And it was in that department that allowed me to like to, to just delve in, establish um, a presence on campus, develop the network, even with faculty, with colleagues, friends, and then work at that time, work on, on Capitol Hill. So before I went to BC, I was a summer intern at the Republican National Committee in 1987. How did I get that? Well, it pays to, you know, to know someone. My second cousin was best friends with Frank Farenkopf, who was the chair of the RNC back in the late 80s and 90s. Now, this was the time of Ronald Reagan. This was the time of, you know, Judge Bork. I mean, we had so many, um, it was it was a classic time of politics and politics was a team sport. We had Republicans playing Democrats on the Oval. We had friends crossing the aisle. I was there basically as an intern at 18 before I went to college. And I had such a good time in that 1987 experience wearing the Brooks Brothers and dressing like a boy. I was having such a good time, did well. And then they invited me back to run the internship my second year. So here I am, 19 years old, going to Capitol Hill, feeling kind of like Reese Witherspoon and Legally Blonde, but not exactly, but feeling very confident in my own way. No mobile phones, right? It just was a classic time to be there. And I ran the internship. So I'm running an internship for 30 other college interns from Ivy Lakes to state schools from all over. And I'm a little bit of Julie the Cruise director across Capitol Hill being able to engage them in all the other learnings outside the internship on what Washington and politics was about. So that second year was was a, another kind of milestone. I continued to stay active in the political science department. I had a relationship at the time, so I didn't necessarily want to leave Washington or leave Boston. And that just kind of continued to um, continue those networks. 1991, hey, a great year to graduate college? Not. Huge recession, not a great time to find a job, but found um, something for the year, which gave me a great education. And that was a catering manager at a biggest kosher catering company in Boston. You learn a lot in catering and general in, in, in project management, special event management. And you learn a lot when it's when it's a significant community with very high expectations. And that customer service arm just kind of is something that we, we flex and we grow those muscles. So all that said, it was that 1987 to 1992, five years of really, I think, indelible, you know, memories and learning opportunities that led me back into a master's program at Boston College in the early 90s. I worked in the housing office, went to school for free, as some of us do when we figure out how to make it work and work at the institution and 
take that benefit, but was active again in the Alumni Association of our master's program and, you know, moved, moved through residence life as we do. And from there, we learned a lot. We had the exposure to so many facets of higher education that we thought, mm, I think some of us went to admissions, some of us went to financial aid, some of us, you know, went into academia. And I was, yeah, I think I was a product of the alumni community, leading that community with the Young Alumni Association in Boston and just kind of naturally, I think, progressed through res life as some of us do onto the next chapter, which was the Tufts University decade. Wow. So politics to kosher catering to higher ed to housing to alumni. Uh, you know, I only lasted three years in housing and I also did the young alumni uh, on campus when I was a student. So I kind of get where you're coming from. Mm -hmm. But how did you end up at Tetra Tech? And what does Gretchen's life look like now being the associate director for scholarships at Tetra Tech? What does that mean? Um, what do you do? Well, just to, just to, uh, I think to, I won't provide the entire journey, but out of the, the Tufts experience in about around 2011, I, 2010, I started to look at doctoral programs and the doctoral program that I was most interested was, in was the executive doctorate in higher education at Penn. So University of Pennsylvania offers a, um, a great intensive two-year program for a lucky 24 that become members of each cohort. I started the program in 2011, and it was, you know, midway through my my academic year that I actually informed my my boss at the time. Also, you'll never have this long of a notice, but in nine months I'm going to be leaving, and I've spent ten years at Tufts, and I'm ready to go on to my own business, and I'm going to start the first consultancy of international alumni relations that exist. You know, let's have a great year, and I'll do all I can to 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 leave on on such a strong note. And so in 2012, I started my consultancy, finished up my doctorate that year. Many clients later that were, you know, colleagues and friends took a chance. Hopefully I delivered well enough, but found myself back in 2013. And this is significant. This is probably one of the most significant, you know, personal and professional moments was when I'm finished with my doctoral program and I'm looking at $95,000 in student loans. And I'm looking at my bank statement with negative $50. What do you do? Well, you send yourself to a yoga retreat. And that's what I did. <laughs> Christmas time came around and there was a yoga retreat at Kripalu in Western Massachusetts. I was a yogi. I went out and it was a mindfulness retreat taught by a rabbi yogi. Christmas Eve to Boxing Day. I came out of that breathing better. Thank you, dad, stepmom for the gift. And within a few weeks, I met a realtor in Boston who said, you live there? You live in a high right? You live in that, that building? I said, yeah. She said, that one has 360 degree views of Boston and Cambridge. I said, yeah, that's my, that's my condo. She said, whoa, I can sell that. <laughs> I said, okay. Within a month, we were showing the house one weekend. I had four offers on Monday. I took the lowest offer, the cash offer on Tuesday. That Friday, I closed. And I had a check in hand and I paid everyone back. I called Sally May. I think the person almost didn't know what to say when I said I'm paid off my loan. My mother was my angel investor. I paid her back at 8% interest. It all was good. Life was good again. And I had the buoyancy and I think the and I had the resources to figure out what was next. But between Tuesday accepting an offer and Friday closing, 
Wednesday night, I receive an email from a colleague in China. Gretchen, I'm going to start a company called the Elite Academy, and we're going to help high net worth families and their one child prepare to go to schools in the West by providing them soft skills trainings. Come to China. Come to Chengdu. Come join me for six weeks. In fact, I want you for three months. Well, listen, Richard, I got about six weeks because I need to come back and move out of my house. Okay, come. I jumped. I went. And a little bit of the rest is history. But on my third day, I met the man I would marry about two years later. And he's Australian, an expat who was seconded, which means overseas assignment in Chengdu, China, Sichuan, Western province, best part of China, in my opinion. And we spent um, a year and a half together there and went back to Brisbane, to Queensland, where he was based. But in between that time in 2012 and 13 and 14, I was already growing my network across the world and speaking at most international education conferences on international alumni relations, which was still this kind of enigma to some. They just didn't get it. It was, I was, you know, at the time I was working on my second and third book when I was in China. And it was all about international alumni relations. So the space and time in China provided me a, a time to, um, to write, to reflect, to be boots on the ground for organizations like University of Massachusetts, Amherst, University of Nebraska. There was a lot of interest in engaging Chinese alumni who would do it. And I was there. So a little bit of the case studies were built from the work on the ground. So during that time between 2012 and this year, I marked my 10th year anniversary as an entrepreneur and a business owner and a consultant in June. In that time, we've written four books. I've written the first one for case 2011, the very first book called Being Global, Making the Case for International Alumni Relations. Followed that up with the, the International Travel Handbook, Engaging Constituents Abroad. That was in 2015. 14 for academic impressions, 2015 worked with the European Association of International Education and um, edited, worked with a great group of, of co-authors across the country, across the world, actually across the continent, Europe, called Staying Global, the last book with my dear friend and partner, Sandra Rincon, we wrote for NASA and we, were, we wrote Engaging International Alumni Strategic Partners, and that was published last year. I find myself remaining kind of the global citizen and in I, I describe my work as, you know, kind of creating the stickiness between constituents and cause. Sometimes working for governments because they're looking to build alumni programs. And sometimes it's a specific institution like the American International School in Lagos, Nigeria. A fantastic three-year project that's near and dear to my heart and starting that program for the school down in Lagos. You know, where I, why I ended up at Tetra Tech and why I'm really excited about this next chapter is because in Australia, the last four to five, six, seven years, I have been working as an international specialist for their scholarships program called Australia Awards. Jessica, you know, in the UK, there's Achieving Scholarship. Yeah. And we have, you know, our Fulbright Scholarship and Marshall Scholarship. So those signature scholarship programs are our human capacity development programs. It's about public diplomacy. It's about the people-to-people -people linkages. And, you know, usually people feel very, very proud and they're connected to their program, their alumni. So I'm working in Papua New Guinea, Vietnam, Fiji, Laos, across Southeast Asia and Asia Pacific now with Tetra Tech. So that Associate Director Scholarships title represents the work that I'm doing with the scholarship programs that are born from the Australia Awards experience. And I'm also sitting uh, in a strategic seat to help 
our division and hopefully our company as a whole think as strategically and smart as possible in trying to link the relationships together on behalf of our, our donors and our clients. So the company works with the U.S. Department of State, USAID, UK, New Zealand, and it's everything from engineering, infrastructure, development, international development side, and education. It's just one pillar of that. There's a lot there. There's a lot there. There's a lot there. there. So much, Gretchen, (laughs) that you've mentioned. But I want to go back to, so two things. One, I have been to Kripalu and done a yoga retreat there. So I know exactly. Isn't that place amazing? I came out of it feeling like a new person as well. But aside from yoga, one thing that you had said was you noticed when you first started that institutions, organizations weren't using or utilizing their international alumni um, as effectively as they could. And I know you from a few years ago and because of your work with international alumni, even though you've been doing this now with 10, 12 years focusing on the international alumni, being a, a consultant and a specialist in that area, I still feel There's a lot of work to be done. The institutions still to this day are not utilizing their international alumni and really getting the best and the most out of them, despite the fact that you've been working hard in this field and that there are a lot more resources than than there were, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Why is that? Can you kind of shed some light on why international alumni are still kind of marginalized and not fully appreciated for all that they bring to an institution or an organization? So this is when we get on a long haul flight, we talk for 12 hours, but we don't have that amount of time. So in the next few minutes, I think it comes down to a few key themes. And, and I, you know, I, I am not alone in this industry right now. There's, there's a, a fantastic core of colleagues and very deep friends around the world doing this kind of work. And then when you sit in the international education space, you now have an audience with leadership and pro-vice chancellors or vice presidents of global engagement or strategy across institutions. Before advancement may have overseen the alumni relationship, the family relationship, they were either foundations, which sat outside in a very kind of autonomous organization with their budgets and ideas and strategy. So a little less connected to a centralized system. And then, so there was a little bit of a silo between organization and foundation, and now with institutions, with international or global engagement being our topic, how many leaders across the institution are actually working together on internationalization? So it comes down to, are we coordinated on internationalization efforts as an institution or an organization? Who is discussing these topics? Uh, It can't be about them without them. So it can't be about alumni with out alumni, but there are a lot of people with relationships with alumni. So let's first kind of map out what that looks like. If there's the charge that's coming from a vice chancellor or a president or a provost or a senior vice president or the board or the alumni themselves, then we have, you know, the call to action or the the mandate, I would say, you know, that it's going to be part of a strategic plan. So how are we going to tie that together? Conversations need to happen internally. And then we need to have them externally. Just it's it's just there's there it takes time to do that. That's some of the consulting we do. We stop, we assess, we reflect. We don't take too much time though. And we need to involve the you know the key players. We need to know what institutions stand for when we say globalization as an institution. What does that mean? Where are we active? Which markets? Where do we start? 
tip, start on the recruitment end because that's going to lead to alumni and parents and families and students are the best ones to tell the story. We all know that. Look at all these peer-to-peer models that are happening and popping up. The ed tech space for peer recruitment is huge. It should be. But we talked, you know, I, I, I looked at this like 10, 12 years ago, like even having a TV show talking about international education across the world, because I'm thinking this is, this is opportunity. Information's power. Not everyone can afford to go to campuses and check them out. And I wanted to bring something to the global South and Mexico and other places where they were watching TV, you know, in comes um, online. So here we are. So it really, it gets back to the, it has to be understood and, you know, internalized made a priority, kind of like get to the why. Simon Sinek tell us, understand your why. Institutions need to understand the why and then work outwards. Mm-hmm. People will forget who, what, where, when, what happened, but they'll never forget how they felt. And then we need to go back to assess how are the alumni feeling today and invite them to kind of get back into the story. So it is, it is lots of different levels. I think it's the most challenging and exciting thing in the world myself and my life work, you really need champions. And so building champions and brand ambassadors is another kind of product of of the work we do. And then a few key champion type stories across the demographics, across the constituency, across the world are the kind of ones that are repurposed and shared and believed. So clearly your passion about the work that you're doing, particularly around alumni relations, international. I I actually don't want this kind of stuff. (laughs) (laughs) But but I want to go back to you and your personal journey, right? You you mentioned earlier a few people who are instrumental in getting you into touch at the alumni function, and then uh, this gentleman who invited you to China out of the blue, which is seemed yeah, like a, a a very uh, exciting time and kind of set your path a little bit. So we talk about destiny benders in our podcast, right? People who come into your lives. Uh, unbeknownst to you sometimes, change your life and bend your destiny, et cetera. So we we kind of know that you've had several of them along the way, but more so than who they are, I'm curious about what did they do? What did they say to you? What are some things that you took away from your interactions with them that still serves you today to do what you're doing personally as Gretchen and also the work that you're doing? Can you maybe comment on that a little bit? I will. And I, I won't have to say names, but if anyone, my my network were to, uh, to listen to our podcast, which I hope they do, I hope that they see themselves in, in what I'm going to share. I think it has to do with our family and in my acknowledgements of my dedications, actually, for this last book published by NASA, I dedicated to both my parents who were active in their alumni associations for 60 plus years. I grew up not reading, you know, Richard Strauss and Dr. Dr. Seuss books. I did read those, but I also read and devoured high school and college yearbooks and understood and looked at alumni groups. And I understood I went to these alumni programs as a kid. It was in my blood. Parents, okay, influences. I think that um, friends, I think everyone, I've mentioned this before in other podcasts and other conversations and interviews. I believe that everyone should develop their personal board of directors. The personal board of directors are going to be the men and women of they who will tell you when your shit stinks, excuse my French, they will tell you when you're onto something, they will offer you the tissue when you're crying, they'll push you ahead if you're scared, and they'll be there. They'll be there for you. No matter what happens, they're there. I had a conversation with a good friend just a few days ago in Florida, and she said, no matter what, I'm on your side. So 
these women and men, but many of them women, are relationships that I now celebrate 20 years old, and many of them come from my Tufts University decade. They're my colleague from the communications and media studies field. They're the alumna from international and domestic cities all over the world. And they're my ports of call. They celebrated my 50th birthday three years ago in Croatia with me. I planned it because I'm a planner. They arrived. Never will I forget that time. And then there, then there are others like my mentor, Tim Brooks. And there are others like my colleagues from Australia, whom I met 10 years ago. And they were involved with global professional associations uh, represent international educators. Mitch Leventhal from Albany, dear friend and business partner. And Gordon Scott in Australia from Successful Graduate. And my dear friend, Ingeborg, who introduced me to my husband, Michael. All of them have been there. And they and we help each other. We've really taken some risks together and we've helped each other. And I will never forget when someone said to me as I started advice, your best clients are your former clients. Maintain those relationships, whether they bring you back again or they bring you to their new job or they refer you on. Right there, there's three, there's three benefits in staying in touch. 100 percent So I think, you know, all of that said, there's other people. And then today. I'd like to just say, you know, as 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 a lifelong yogi, um, one of the things that I've wanted to do for many years was to um, to train as a as a yoga teacher. I love to teach, as you know, and I thought, let me let me bring some, let me blend the passions. And so I'm just finishing up my international diploma in yoga teacher yoga teaching with the International Yoga Teachers Association based in Sydney, global organization, um, 460 hour program. So um, it's fairly intense, but, and so this has been the last couple of years has been definitely a time to um, peel away another few layers of my onion. And um, my soul is connecting in the right ways to the right people at the right time. And that's kind of where I am. I couldn't be at a, a happier place. And I'm really, really um, grateful to those people in my life and they know who they are for keeping me grounded and keeping me real and then telling me to go, you know, and I think we get to a place where uh, we find that our instinct and our gut and our heart are in alignment and the world needs people at this stage and they need us to get off our butts and, or to continue the work and to bring others along and to be there for others. So we talked about my mentors. I am so proud of the people that I am mentoring today and the ones I've passed. And they don't, they're they're still in touch. Once a mentor, always a mentor, you know? The ones like we're always going up to our mentors and we're always kind of mentoring across or mentoring, you know, into the next stage. What's the best piece of advice that you give to your mentees as you're mentoring them? If you're to choose one. Document things. Document. Hmm, that's interesting. That's a new one. Tell us more. Okay. Keep a journal. Keep a professional work journal. How am I feeling today? Now these are great because everyone's going to say, "Hey, did you did you did you complete your my plan? You know your performance management. You know every year you have to kind of come. I mean, we're getting back to those kind of okay. Are you in a hybrid work situation, in person or situation? We need to we need to do do our part in tracking our assessment. It's about self assessment. But it's also about the assessment of the of the culture, assessment of the workspace, assessment of the management, assessment of our working, what we're doing. And it's just, you know, document, keep a journal, put a line down the middle of the page, date it today and say, this is what I want and this is what I don't want. Make a list every few months, go back and reflect on it. And I'm saying document by journaling, but also document when when something is, is just kind of hitting you the wrong way. Because, because at some point, you'll kind of go back to that. It'll be helpful. And I think if anything, you'll be able to pass a lesson on 
lesson learned to someone else. And that's one of the responsibilities that we have as international educators. It's going to continue to be one of the best opportunities in the world for students and administrators and faculty to engage across borders. But what we want to do, and I'm going to quote our esteemed journalist and thought leader, Stan Grant from the Australia's Broadcasting Corporation, ABC, who was a keynote at the Australian International Education Conference two weeks ago, when he said that it's not about borders, it's about boundaries and barriers of the mind. It's really about changing mindsets. We started with the question about what's the advice, it's to document, but it's it's really to journal and to remain very reflective, remain reflective, self-assessment. Can you find yourself? Do you feel aligned? I do today. That's great advice because I don't I don't think people are reflective often enough. You know, some people are, but I think everybody could benefit from from being a bit more reflective um, and writing it down. I know I certainly could, which is something I don't do, but I, w- I want to be mindful of your time. So you live in Australia currently, but you're actually talking to us from the United States right now because you flew over for uh, a board meeting, which you're heading out to. Do you want to tell us just a tiny bit about that? Yeah, tiny bit about the wonderful organization called ISEP, Study Abroad. And uh, so we are uh, an organization that facilitates uh, exchange programs, everything from a classic exchange between campus to campus, a one-to-one or a five-to-five type of exchange, all the way to some really self-direct, self-created um, kind of programs that are providing students from all over the world to access international education experience from short term to one year. It's my first board meeting with ISEP. I just joined in July and I'm looking forward to meeting um, members from, you know, board members from and the team, of course, at ISEP from around the world over the next couple of days. And I think um, helping them think about the engagement of the students and the alumni and looking forward to meeting some old friends. One is the head of the Fulbright Foundation in Finland, and she hired me 10 years ago to write, to to work on a research project. And she said, I can't wait to see you this week. And I said, wow, that's how, that's how our circles come full circle. The best thing about our, I think as international educators, our, our networks are are only as big as we create them, but they're only as strong as we, how we maintain Maintain them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know, Gretchen, as we always wrap up, we try to do it on a lighter note. We call it a quick fire question round. And so we we want we want to wrap up with that. So my first quick fire question to you is you've traveled around the world, sounds like a lot of different places. Uh, What would be one destination that you've never been to that you'd love to go to if that was on top of your list? I just mentioned this the other day is Cappadocia, Turkey. Mm. Because yeah. I've been to Turkey a zillion times, but I haven't been to Cappadocia. I just didn't get that far east. Yeah, hot and air balloons. Hot air balloons. I think, you know, I'm always full of hot air. Why not <laughs> go there and enjoy that with someone that's someone special? Yeah, that, that's one. I just mentioned that. I just was talking to someone the other day about that. So my question for you is, are you your reader? What yes, book would you recommend to our podcast listeners? Um, let's go for a fictional book, not a not a businessy type book, but something just to get lost in and enjoy. Mm, I'll just say anything about by Paula Coelho. Okay, oh, okay. Um, just just that's come up recently, and um, I've gone back to a couple of those. But I think in the in the theme of being reflective and to understand our space. I mean, our, our kind of place in this, in this world, in our own universe. And he has this wonderful, wonderful quote 
and I'm going to, I'm going to botch it, but it's a bit basically about, we are in this wonderful universe um, kind of as a space and time. We are there to meet, to greet and to better, better ourselves in our world. And we're just the parentheses on a space of eternity. Yeah. Beautifully said. Like Absolutely. That. That's yeah. nice. I yeah. think that gives us, I think, uh, a moment so we can pause, but let's not take too long pausing. Let's, we know, we know what we want. We know what's on those lines between what we want and what we don't want. That's a great note to end this chat on. Thank you so much, Gretchen. Really appreciate your time. I know you're busy. You're all over the world, but we wish you the best of luck. Thank you. Let's change some destiny. Okay. You've been listening to Destiny Benders. Next week's episode comes from Senegal, where Girish spent a few days touring the country with senior international officers and international educators. We hope you'll join us. Mm-hmm.